From reviews to rankings, the big picture is all things movies. From in-depth analysis of the latest flick to sit-down interviews with some of the biggest movie stars and filmmakers on the planet, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins have got you covered. Check out the big picture on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's, uh, it comes with a price. What does? This life you want to live to really help people, we really try to help people anyway. Comes a lot of sacrifices. There's some things you'll lose forever. No, there's also things you gain, like trick arrows and cool costume. Welcome into the Ringerverse here on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, and it is my absolute pleasure to invite you not only to KB Toys, but also to join us on the Ringer's Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. Joining me today, now that she's finished up her shift at Trust a Bro Moving Company, it's my house of our title co-host ringer senior staff writer joanna robinson you good bro i'm pretty good bro i have a question if i bought you a pair of imagine dragons tickets would you take (laughs) me or would you take someone else uh i i promise that if you ever gift me with concert tickets i i I can assure you I will not take someone else. I will either take you or just say, really appreciate the gesture. Why don't you just use these? Because I'm not a big uh, big concert goer. You're like, but- sounds like a living nightmare to me. <laughs> we all know these are for you. So have fun. I guess. Do you do that, Joanna? Do you gift people things that are really meant for you? Probably. But not intentionally. Yeah. Do you know what no. I mean? Not intentionally. But, do but you sometimes years later. You're, yeah, yeah. Years later. Years you're like, later. I think so. Oh, wow. I, uh, on the home front, had an experience literally yesterday where mm. both my husband and I realized that we had done that with uh, that day's Hanukkah gifts. So this, this one really hit this week. What were they? Can you share? I can. Yeah, sure. We're really just, oh boy, we're, okay. we're just on a, one of our classic tangents here midway through <laughs> the intro. I love it. I received a pair. <laughs> <laughs> a pair of sunglasses. I don't currently have a pair of sunglasses. I live in a sunny place, Southern sure. California. And so I really should have a pair. Yeah. And Adam gifted me a pair of sunglasses. Very thoughtful. However, they were definitely just a pair that he liked for him. Mm. They had like a camo design, this really like highly reflective mirror look. They were kind of like bit too big for my face and not in a hip way, though perhaps I'm just not like hip enough to pull that off. That's distinctly possible. You're describing and like a Duck Dynasty sort of vibe <laughs> off of these sunglasses. Is that what you're talking about? No, okay. they're th- th- not not quite, no. Okay. But uh, they did end up within mere moments on his on his own face. And they look great on him, I gotta say. I had gifted him some gold belly orders of some New York uh, delicacies, including a dozen donuts from Donut Plant. And within minutes of opening the box, I had eaten two. So 
you know, he got to enjoy them as well, but I was partaking. This is just, this is just one night of Hanukkah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Oh boy. Well, we are not here only to talk about gift giving. We are here, of course, to chat about Echoes, the fantastic third episode of Hawkeye. We have so much to get to today, but a few programming reminders as always before we dive in to the take quiver, which is which is full. Regular take arrows, <laughs> trick take arrows. My all of putty it. takes, my <laughs> suction cup takes. Waiting yeah. for those acid takes, you know? <laughs> That's what people really tune in for. They burn, they burn. The Midnight Boys, Van and Charles. Pew, pew, pew. pew. Got a pew pew in this episode, as you noted, Joe. We'll be back next Wednesday with their instant reaction to what is somehow already the fourth episode of Hawkeye. Astonishing stuff. Unbelievable. We're halfway done. It's so sad. Great Midnight Boys this week. I, there was this is a, a quick and quiet little moment that I just loved so much when Charles said he wanted, you know, five to ten more minutes of Ronan in Endgame. And Van was like, they had, they had lives to save. <laughs> People to bring back from too. the dead. Yeah, Wonderful exactly. little exchange. Joanna and I will, of course, be back with you next Friday for our Hawkeye episode four. Deep dive. We are all having so much fun talking about this show, so please keep tuning in. You can do that by following the pod on Spotify. By the way, to all the people who are following the pod on Spotify, thank you for tagging us in your Spotify wrapped notices that warmed our heart. It was really Truly. wonderful to see. Made us so happy. And of course, follow our social feeds. The Ringer versus on Twitter. The Ringer versus on Instagram. The Ringer versus on Facebook. The Ringer versus everywhere. Bear in mind as well, our friendly neighborhood spoiler warning. Today's podcast will feature plot details from this most recent episode of Hawkeye, the entire Hawkeye run to date, the entire MCU run to date, and Marvel Comics canon. All of it. We're even going to dip into some Netflix Marvel canon later in today's show. So proceed with more <laughs> caution than the tracksuit Draculas did when faced with a Pym particle arrow. Let's pod, bro. Let's do it, bro. Joanna, this episode... Mid-season mark, episode three, Echoes, written by Katie Mathewson and Tanner Bean, directed by Bert and Birdie. Quick overall snapshot of your impressions. What did you think? I thought it was tremendous. I think that, you know, uh, some people in the... I really love the first two episodes as we discussed last week, but I think some people who weren't as over the moon about them thought maybe they felt a little slow. Um, I would agree with the critique that maybe the action wasn't quite like up to snuff in the first two episodes. Just some of the fights seemed a little uh, janky to me. Throw all those concerns out the windows. This is like a no holds barred action fest with a lot of emotional beats sort of sandwiched in between, which is incredible. Like the balance of the action and the emotion. And I mean, what it means to me is that that slow, slower start of the first two episodes, even though there was plenty going on, that's necessary groundwork that they have to lay so that we care that Kate survives this car chase or whatever it is. Um, you know, and a brand new character like Kate Bishop, who we only met a couple episodes ago, I already care so much about her. Um, and I think that's just the good work of of the the opening episodes of this season. It is a short season. As we said, we're already halfway through. I can't believe it. I'm doing the thing already where I'm just talking about how sad I'm going to be when it's over instead (laughs) of living in the moment. (laughs) 
What's wrong Mal with was me? Like, Mal was like, what am I going to do, Joanna? You texted me. I was like, we'll figure something out. We'll find was, something to watch. It was an incredible watch. moment because I was just so sad. And you're like, you know, this is a special thing, but there will be more shows. Like, There's always something. There's always <laughs> a lot more shows. How about you? How about you, Mal? What's your, what's your overall? Loved it. Have loved all three. Love the show. What a phenomenal and enjoyable experience this has been. I, I, I agree with everything that you said. I thought that the action sequences and the brisk pace of this episode was just like a scintillating viewing experience. But to be able to marry that with those really moving character moments moving in terms of how they impacted us and stayed with us and have lingered with us. Like I, I've revisited this episode. I've thought about it a lot since watching it. And that applies to multiple characters, Echo, Kate, Clint, et cetera, but also how it moved the character arcs, how quickly key insights were established for us, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit more as, as we go today. Just a, a delightful, delightful what I think ended up being when you remove the previously on the opening logo and the end credits, like 37 minutes of TV, just a joy. I can't wait for the rest of the season. And I am really sad already that it's almost over, but I think that the back half of this is just going to be a, a sincere and genuine treat. I talked to someone who worked on the show and they were like, you're going to really love the last three episodes. I was like, but I already love these episodes. He's like, no, you're really going to love the last three. And I was oh, like, wow. what, what is coming? <laughs> oh my God. Um, but yeah, like to your point, I really like, I think that the relationship, primarily the relationship between Clint and Kate, which is the one that we are sort of most invested in, in the show, especially given all the things we talked about in the first two episodes about. Well, I'm most invested in the relationship between Lucky and yeah, hopefully sorry, a, a you're right. well-balanced meal. But yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak for all of us. <laughs> I forgot about your priorities. But but uh, especially like what we talked about in terms of Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton and, you know, maybe that he wasn't the most popular character uh, and maybe some folks had, you know, weren't so excited to hang with him for six episodes. I think already we've seen so much development and that dynamic between the two of them. I think is really strong. And there's just little moments, little toss away moments. Like they're big emotional moments. And there's like little moments like when um, I think it's Echo or one of the tracksuits, someone asks them what they're doing there. Clint starts to answer, but Kate also says, learning about trust. Trust. Yeah. It's just like something she throws in there. Um, and it great. and it all just like comes together in a in a very, I think, convincing way. Um, you know, through the action into the emotional beats. So yeah. yeah. Guess what? It's a good show. It's a good show, Mal. <laughs> it really is. It's been, it's been such a pleasure. I'm curious what you think the primary theme of this show is. Like what overarching thematic through lines are standing out to you, both inside of this episode in particular, but the season as a whole so far and what you think the ultimate theme of the show might be at the end. Like, what is Hawkeye about? And I don't want to be reductive. Like, obviously, this show and any other show, it's not just about one thing. And of course, there are these overarching themes across Phase 4, as we have discussed many times, that connect a lot of this early Phase 4 storytelling, these kind of bridge stories past into the future, mantle passing, etc., but I do think that you could make the case, at least, that again, while acknowledging there are multiple themes at play in all of these stories, that each 
live action Disney Plus MCU show to date had a dominant theme. You know, WandaVision really explored how characters work through grief, right? And the toll of that trauma. Falcon explored identity and Loki explored purpose. And all of those shows explored many other things as well. But those were kind of the, the, the through lines. What do you think that will be or is at this point in Hawkeye? I think there are a few different candidates. Well, I'm going to shamelessly crib off of our producer, Steve, who picked a, a clip for the uh, uh, intro talking about the the price of being a superhero, the cost of being a superhero. Um, and I think, you know, in our interview with, with Reese Thomas, I think he said something similar. I think Fraction said something similar as well. Like, this is all Can about- I make an observation? Yeah. One of the things that you do that I find just so generous of spirit and just genuinely touching <laughs> as a person who works with you is the way you say our interview when it's something that you did by yourself. <laughs> Like, honestly, very moving. It's the show's interview <laughs> with. It's ours. It's very sweet. Um, but it's uh, the cost, the toll, the sacrifices. Clint is such a good vehicle for that kind of story because he is the one who is most apparently bruised and battered physically by this. And so when we're examining the emotional, personal cost, the sacrifices, which we get not just in his overt discussion of it in the diner scene, but in that phone call scene. Ooh. What, yeah, what you Ooh. lose to do this. And I think maybe the overall question will be, is it worth it to do it anyway? Do you know? To quote another, <laughs> to cite another Jeremy Renner property, Arrival. <laughs> Arrival. Uh, but you're going to go with Mayor of Kingstown. Not you know? mayor, I'm not watching. Pivot to the, the Sheridan Hive here. <laughs> I'm not I'm ready watching. to talk about Yellowstone with you whenever you'd like. Okay. Just let me know. Okay. Um, but, I have so many John Dutton thoughts. <laughs> but in Arrival, there is, that's the over, like, she did it anyway, is like the takeaway from Arrival without spoiling specific things. And so it's like, you do it anyway. You 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 sacrifice all these things and you do it anyway. And there's a reason you do it. I don't know. What yeah. do you think? Oof. Yeah. Boy, Arrival, great movie, Incre <laughs> based on a truly incredible short story. I I think that's exactly right and seems central, especially rich to analyze those questions through the lens of this pairing and this partnership between Clint and Kate because you have someone who is at the outset. I mean, Kate has been doing this for a long time and has the, the, these the roots and the origin of her desire to fight and protect obviously go back to 2012 as we saw in the opening sequence of episode one. But she is she's at the beginning of the hero game and Clint has been through it. And so what is ultimately harmonious and shared in their perspectives and what varies, I think will be, is already really interesting and will be fascinating to continue to track. I think for me, and this is inextricable from what you just outlined, I think, you know, completely related, the weight of the past. You know, I think of this episode name, Echoes, which is of course about uh, Maya Lopez, Echo, but it's also about the echoes of the past more broadly through these characters' lives and through this story and through the MCU at large, you know, thinking of a moment like in the comic when Echo says, thinking of the handprint that William leaves on her face, that bloody handprint, which of course we we got in, in this episode, you know, he leaves me with only his Echo. How many Echoes are there for all of these characters? Ronan, lost fathers, 
lost friends and partners and teammates like Nat, Clint's hearing loss and that physical toll of this work. You know, that moment when Kate is talking about like the, just uh, that sense of purpose and like so assured that this is what she wants to do. And it's really heartbreaking to hear Clint reply, you know, I remember the day I thought the same thing. Like it's so far away from where he is right now. And when he says, you know, it's uh, it comes with a price, you think of all the prices and all the way those prices manifest, right? It's Nat, it's the distance he feels with his family right now. It's the part of himself that he's lost through the years as Ronan, et cetera. It's heavy, man, in a very cheerful show. I think if you pull, if we want to like pull forward a little bit of theory craft, like the conversation we had last week and we will continue to have this week about what's going on with Eleanor and if there is like some like villainous reveal coming for her. You talk about Kate being at the beginning of her journey. Like that's, you know, we only have three episodes to go, but that is potentially a rude awakening coming for Kate is this sort of having the rug pulled out from under her about not only her mom, but potentially also her father and all these things that she thinks, you know, so that's a, that's a price she's going to pay for getting involved in all of this before the season is done. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that connects to what is one of the other through lines of course, this question of identity when they're talking about, you know, the branding issues or the, yeah. the way we see Hawkeye's role within and outside of the Avengers. But then the way that sense of self, how you view yourself, how the world views you connects to the trust, right? And the partnership yeah. and the ties that bind. Like, I think that idea of the ties that bind is really, really central here. You know, even just looking at this episode and the fact that we have a uh, pairs directing it, a pair writing it. Oh, it's a good point. Uh, you know, obviously like this episode <laughs> yeah. is so much about these pairings that define the story and these characters' lives. Obviously, there's a lot of discussion, as you noted, of trust And, you know, even something like Kate saying, all right, partner, like using that word partner, all of these pairings that are defining this show and the story, you know, Kate and Clint, Kate and her dad, Kate and her mom, Jack and Eleanor, Clint and his children, you know, Nathaniel in this episode, Lila previously, Echo and William, Echo and Kazi, like on and on the list goes. There are these factions, but then there are these duos within that. And it's again, like so much of the jovial spirit and the Christmas spirit and this condensed time frame with that march toward Christmas, as you noted last episode, and the action, to be able to like imbue the episodes with that kind of thematic resonance while still moving at such a brisk pace. And the first thing you think when you finish it is, man, that was fun. And then you're like, wow, I'm just going to go cry for 30 minutes while I think about that phone call again. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. They're doing a lot and they're doing it well. Can I hop on your analysis of the title uh, train Please. also? You, you talked about like echoes from the past. And maybe maybe you meant this as well, but I think a lot uh, about the like resonant echoes between like of Kate and Echo as echoes of each other in terms of like what they share, yes. like, you know, the loss of the father, all like how Clint is question mark, maybe involved in both of their backstories, the training, all of that sort of stuff. They're they're sort of mirrors of each other as they go forward. Remember, for your match, it's more about speed than size. 
Hmm? Uncle will take you home after class. I'll see you tonight. Should we talk about this introduction of, let's of do Echo? It. Okay, let's talk about this. All right, all right. They so they cram a, an origin story for a character with all the trappings, the dead parent, like the training, all of that. In what is it? Five minutes? Is it even that long? I think it's like ends at the seven-ish minute mark of the episode, but that includes the previously on and the opening Marvel word mark. So yeah, you're talking about a handful of minutes. And we are invested. And like, so there's a, and there's a couple of factors at play here. Uh, I mentioned before we started recording that Chris and Andy over on The Watch were not as much of a fan of this episode as we were. And and Andy was sort of objecting to this idea of putting this doe-eyed little girl at the beginning of an episode to get us to care. And I could see how... If it were done differently, that would feel manipulative to me as well. But I thought this was done so elegantly. A big part of that was um, the use of Zon McLaren, who is an incredible, Just incredible, tremendous. incredible TV actor. He is um, phenomenal. And I just, I thought I, it's, it's too short. Like I, like I knew Zon was in the cast. I think I talked about him on a previous episode about how excited yep. I was to see him. We got very little of him, but a lot of, a lot of juice for, for those couple of minutes. But as William, as her father, his love for her and her bond with him was just, I mean, just really incredible stuff. And you think about like other origin stories that take up a whole entire movie and don't manage to have the same kind of emotional resonance mm-hmm. as this did, at least for me. So... Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think before we dive into some of what we learned from a story perspective further, you're right to just highlight how effective this was as an opening note. And it's obviously not the, I mean, I, I thought everything we, we got with Echo in this, this episode was in, incredible, but it's also not the first time that we've gotten something like this in the Hawkeye run to date. You know, you noted those parallels between Kate and Echo. And one of the parallels is just from a structural storytelling perspective in the sense that the deftness that is required to give us everything we got in the opening backstory origin story for Kate in episode one and the opening for Maya here, like in less capable hands, those scenes and sequences, because we we obviously got more than one moment in time and more than one scene with with each character, they not only don't feel this effective, they, they're bad, right? They're rushed, they're crammed. It just feels purely like exposition to get yeah. us where we need to be. And these don't feel that way at all. They don't feel forced. They don't feel rushed despite how contained they are. They are functioning as crucial exposition, but also, and this is this is like coming up time and time again already, also working so effectively as crucial character building. And I think one of the things that's really struck me is not only how well they work in a vacuum for the characters who are at the the center, but what it speaks to about the task at large here. Like, we don't need a moment like that or a sequence like that for Clint, of course, because we have spent years and years and years with Clint Barton in the MCU, right? We know so much about Clint, but we he is surrounded by characters who we need to become quickly just as invested in and haven't spent any time with it all inside of the MCU. 
It's funny. I was just, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about like what other characters we have. Could we see something else like that? Yes. I wanted to ask you this. Who oh, do you well, think? I mean, we could get it for Eleanor because she's like hinted at the fact that she, you know, she didn't grow up rich. Like how did, how did she get where she is? Um, I've since sort of gotten deep into the theories about Eleanor and like folks have pointed out that uh, like she, she shows very quick reflexes in the first episode when she sort of flips that grape or whatever it is she does into her mouth or like, so like what kind of training did Eleanor have? Like what, what is her story? So that's possible. And then I was thinking, oh, and then Yelena showing up and I was like, wait, we, we got this for Yelena at the beginning of Black yeah. Widow movie. You and I had a really fun time talking about, and they did this really efficiently for Yelena as well at the beginning of that, of that film. So, um, right. Right. yeah, I don't know. Is, is there anyone else you want to see their, their backstory? Well, Obviously, we got a glimpse of Maya at the end of episode two, but this was really our true introduction to her, just as the beginning of episode one was our introduction to Kate. And so I wonder if it like if we would get something like this for a character who's already in the show. Like I thought, okay, could we get something like this for Kazi, you know, to learn more about his backstory? But has he been in the show too much already to pan back in that way? I'll be curious to see, I guess, if they expand it. If they do, then I agree. Eleanor has to be on the list and high on the list. Jack as swordsman, similarly. I mean, we're going to talk about Uncle, we're going to talk about our, you know, the king, the kingpin of it all a lot as we go today. So could we get something like this for kingpin inside of the MCU? That would be a pretty fun way to kick off, let's say, the finale. And if we did, like, I think it's really interesting that episode two ends with like Echo showing up as a threat and episode three ends with Jack showing up as a threat. And um, like right at the end, like cliffhangers in a way that Marvel TV doesn't usually do, you know? And um, like, how are they? Go- how are they gonna get out of this one? Is sort of how the last two episodes have ended, or last three actually. Because- I mean, yeah, episode one ends that way too. It's not a a foe, but it's still like, a, oh shit, who is this person in front of me, and what does this mean? Yeah, and that to me felt feels very like it again. It reinforces this idea of episodes as issues. You know what I mean? And if there is like a central baddie of the of the week sort of thing, that's that's an old like Buffy trope. But if there is like, it would could be fun if if next week is a Jack episode and the following week is a Yelena episode and, you know, then maybe an Eleanor episode, something like that. Um, I don't, I'm not sure it'll be that clean, but that could be really fun. I think, you know? Yeah. I I love this. This is great. Where broadly does Maya's intro in this episode rank for you? You don't necessarily have to do an actual order, but like (laughs) maybe more, what does it, how is it making you feel like we talked about this last episode? Oh, you know, Kate, this is such an incredibly strong onboarding of a crucial character. Yeah. And that was how we felt about Yelena. That was how we felt about Kang. So we're on a really good run here in yeah. phase four of meeting new characters who are going to be incredibly important to the rest of phase four and hopefully beyond and becoming very gripped by their stories very quickly. Does that give you, not that your confidence was wavering necessarily, but does that give you more confidence moving forward? What's your read on all of that? Oh, yeah. Like, I'm so excited. Like, every time I get uncertain, there's there are things that I'm uncertain about in the future of Marvel. But, like, every time they drop one of these new characters in, I'm like, okay, okay, Maya Lopez. Okay, Kate Bishop. Yeah, I, I don't know how to rank it. I will just say that, like, I loved all of these intros. Jonathan Majors' Kang just like kind of blew my mind 
in a way that I'm still not recovered from. So uh, that's probably, if I had to pick one, it would be that one. But yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss here about the parallels that you mentioned between the Kate and Echo origin opening parallels in terms of their fathers and the role that their fathers played in both of those snapshots? Well, what's interesting is that like, I think, I think we're, I mean, I am deeply aboard the Derek Bishop is not dead train. Oh, here's, here's, here's another reinforcement. Um, you know how my argument was, my main argument was they aged down Brian Darcy James, which is only under, if you, if you see West Side Story, whenever you get to see West Side Story and Brian Darcy James is in that, you'll, as the famed Officer Krupke, you will, you will understand that like they have aged this gentleman down. And that's how I knew Zahn McLaren was toast because when William showed up, I'm like, oh, they didn't age him down. He's not going to make it. It's not going to make it out. But he is going to make it into the Echo Spin-off, better. I hope there better I, be so many flashbacks. A lot They're, of William. Yeah, I want like full Ghost Dad. Like, give me Dexter Ghost Dad. Like, six feet under Ghost Dad. Like, give me it's, Ghost Dad's one of my least favorite tropes, but not if it's played by Zon McLaren. Okay, but uh, our pals over on the Midnight Boys, pew pew. Um, Van was talking about how he doesn't really enjoy sympathetic villains, and I'm the complete opposite. Like, I really love uh, a conflict where. I'm not sure who to root for in all of this. I think that's, for me, a, a more satisfying story. And um, I love this introduction of Echo, someone that we are emotionally invested in. And I love this idea that, like, her dad, for all the fact that he was, like, in the tracksuit mafia, he's wearing a tracksuit, seems like such a good guy, like, in that he was really doing this for, like, he had a reason to do this for his daughter, et cetera. Whereas Derek Bishop presents as, like, a nice dad, but I'm convinced that he's not a good guy. You know, so it's that nice little, like, flip of who's the villain, who's the hero here, et cetera. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. You know, I, lo- I love a I love a sympathetic villain. I love a, a complex villain. I love characters who give us an opportunity to ask, well, what does it even mean to be a villain? And is that, like, even the term that we should be applying here. I mean, I think that, you know, in the comics, as we discussed briefly previously, Maya is, you know, connected to Kingpin and Kingpin is the one in the comics who is responsible for her father, William's death, but he pins it on Daredevil, right? And so when Kingpin is in essence, you know, raising Maya as like a protege and working to cultivate these skills. She is associated with a character who is like an iconic villain, right? But then ultimately becomes a hero. So will that be the same sequence of events here? And how quickly will that happen? Will we get to that point at the end of this series? Will that come in the ensuing Echo show? And does it really matter what the timeline is? Because ultimately, Maya is just so gripping and so interesting to to watch. And I thought that the, you know, we'll, we'll we'll circle back to Uncle and Ronan and William and and all of that in a minute here. But <laughs> yeah, so much to discuss. My goodness, I know, I know. I, I just I found those scenes between Maya and William the conversation that they have when she is a child after coming back from that day at school, the brief exchange at the martial arts competition. And then of course the final exchange when she finds him after 
Ronan has stabbed him. Like, so touching. So, so, so beautiful to see their bond, to see how much he cares for her and how he guides her in terms of the way that she thinks about life and the world. Just thought was... I was like, I could watch, I could watch these two together for hours. Like I almost, I mean, as much as I want Echo to be set in the modern timeline and have a real impact on events, I'm like, give me a, an a Echo show set yeah. years ago so that I could just spend more time with these two. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna totally cheat and go, you know, we have this like outline laid out and we don't always follow the outline, but I'm gonna like really go off outline for a minute here and talk okay. about how do it. There's this question of the you know, you mentioned the 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 plot line in the comics being that Kingpin, who we suspect is probably this uncle we and everyone else on the planet suspect is yes. probably this uncle character uh who shows up to to pinch her cheek uh mm-hmm. early yep. in the in the series uh in the season episode that's what i mean to say that he lies to her about who killed her dad and pins it on a hero that has led some people to wonder if maybe the ronin that we see kill her father is not clint but actually someone else and we can like and maybe that someone is jack and we can talk and that maybe that's why he wanted the ronin sword maybe he's the original ronin and clint like picked up that persona from him and all of that so the bigger qu- and, and that's all possible and that's that would be that would, so many thoughts you will though you closely to the comics canon it would put position echo to have maybe a break with Kingpin, maybe Kingpin ordered her father killed, you know, and is hiding it, et cetera, for some reason. It would put her in a position to maybe be a protagonist in her own show. Maybe Charlie Cox's Daredevil shows up to, like, train her in some new stuff. Maybe Kingpin and Kazi are the villains of that show. Who knows? Like, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the question at the center of that theory, just how dark are we willing to go with Clint Barton? in this show, right? We, if we want to believe that this wasn't Clint, that Clinton couldn't, Clint could never possibly killed her father, but her father was a criminal and he was killing criminals all, all through it. Like, so how much are we actually going to reckon with what we saw him do in Endgame? Uh, or how much are we just going to say, well, that Ronan wasn't our Clint. That was Jack mm-hmm. Duquesne, you know, like, what oh, do you think? Boy, what, what a great question. I have so many thoughts. Clear um, your schedules, folks. <laughs> We're gonna be here for a while. <laughs> All right, let me let me try to organize my thoughts for a second here. I'll, I'll start with the last point. I completely understand why a lot of viewers are are asking something like that this week. Like, how dark will we go? Or, well, we you know we got a few mailbag questions about this idea. Like, it, now that we've met William and have fallen in love with William and this relationship between William and Maya, like, would they dare to follow through on this and say that actually when we see Ronan in Maya's memories killing not only William, but the rest of the the tracksuits at that base, like, would they make that Clint? I would posit that not only would they, but that that would be like the point. That the fact that Clint has done these things and is so haunted and that other people who have been impacted by his actions are so haunted by the things that he did during those years as Ronin 
are not things that you can actually just walk away from and escape. That doesn't mean that Clint Barton or any other, you know, that other people don't deserve a second chance. And obviously, when Nat found him in Japan in Endgame, that was what she tried to appeal to. And you get that heartbreaking moment where he says, you know, don't give me hope, right? But think of what we hear Clint say in Tokyo. They got Thanos, you get me. Like this idea of unilateral vigilante justice where he is the sole arbiter. And because he is suffering, everybody else needs to as well. You know, think of some of the things that Rhodey said to Nat in Endgame to set her, that set her to find Clint in the first place. You know, talking about how the Federales in Mexico found that room full of bodies and it looks like a bunch of cartel guys and they never even had a chance to get their guns off and his certainty, you know, it's definitely Barton. And one of the things that Rhodey says that always sticks with me is what he's done here, what he's been doing for the last few years, right? So that establishes for us the time span during which Clint has been doing these things. I mean, the scene he left, I got to tell you, there's a part of me that doesn't even want to find him. Like, Clint was doing terrible things. And just because they are nominal, quote unquote, bad guys or involved in crime doesn't mean they're all bad people. And it doesn't mean he gets to make that decision. And I think the show has to grapple with that to be as effective as we ultimately want it to be. And so while I think there are plenty of pathways to the theories of other characters actually being Ronin and a couple of them that I like a lot, which we can talk about in, more in a second here. I, I will not only be okay with it actually being Clint, I think it will be a, quite a powerful storytelling choice if that's what ends up happening or pr- proving true. Yeah, let me say something really quickly and then I want to get to the rest of what I've cleared my schedule for. <laughs> the rest of your monologue. But like, the question is, with only three more episodes and in theory, a show that, I think is going to end with an ugly Christmas, like ugly sweater Christmas party on the Barton farm. Like totally. Can we, can we wrap our arms around that much of a swing? Yes. Because again, I think that that's one of the through lines of phase four and frankly, one of the missions of phase four, like think about what we saw in WandaVision or think about Loki is maybe the, the best example of this. Loki is not only a character who has been a villain at many points in the MCU, and I'm not saying Clint is a villain, but someone who has done bad things, right? Things to be deeply ashamed of. And specifically, is coming off of the 2012 Battle of New York at the outset of Loki, right? And by the end of that show, I don't want to speak for everyone else, but I'm just like, I care so deeply about what happens to this person. Now, I've cared a lot about Loki heading into that show, so this... You know, the the interest of full disclosure. But I think that these characters seeking to be introspective and to actually wrestle with the choices that they have made and the consequences of those choices in their own lives and in the wider world is something that can happen relatively. It's, it's, I mean, I was going to say relatively quickly, but I, I think, you know, like that's like the length of, we've got the length of a movie still ahead of us and think of how much can happen inside of a movie, right? So with Clint in particular, there's so much time spent already. And a lot of this is established that like, it's not going to be a shock to us to learn that he did this. So the time to me is more about him and other people like Kate who consider him like, oh, you're the reason I decided to do all this in the first place 
really interrogating what it means that he did and what the path forward is. Like, I don't think the outcome is Clint did this and so he's not worth our time anymore. It's Clint and all these other characters are ultimately worth our time because they ask themselves these questions and allow us to think about these things as well. Like, that's ultimately going to make them more interesting as as characters. No, I mean, definitely worth our time. But like, can we watch him like swig eggnog while, you know, baby, please come home for Christmas plays or something like that. Like, I don't know. But I mean, well, maybe there's, but incongruities are one of the through lines of his story, right? So maybe it's like not a purely happy moment. Maybe it's still him trying to come to terms with the fact that like he's, the thing he wants is that peace and that sense of family in place. And in that moment there, he still has those, those echoes from the past. Oh, I think you guys, I will just say this. I think you guys were like a little higher on Loki than I was. I really liked Loki, but I felt, I felt some of that jangle. I know you did, but I felt, and I liked a lot of it. I Joe. I liked a lot of it. I liked a lot of it. I think it's a, I, it's like up uh, in the top half of the Marvel TV shows. There's only been a few. That's a stupid ranking. But anyway, um, I did feel those swings in tone. They felt a little jangly to me in that show. And I feel like I like the, I feel the tone of this show is a little bit more consistent and assured. So anyway, I mean, we'll see how it all tracks out. I have no reason to not have faith in a show that has given me three episodes I've really enjoyed. So, yeah, you know. What what do you think the the case is or the clues are for, like, do you think that is Clint and will it be Clint? You just keep talking about this now rather than saving it for (laughs) Kingpin Corner, Theory Corner coming later today where we'll hit on some other theories. But because we're because we're talking about this now, like. Well, so I tweeted about this. Okay, when I get like really into a show, sometimes I wake myself up with like theories. This is it's a really broken brain part of me. And I like it. I woke myself up like I stayed up late. You you and I both did. And I think both Jomi and Steve did as well, like stayed up late to watch the episode, even though I don't have to anymore, watch it like right at midnight. I did anyway. Um, and then I woke myself up at like 6am being like, <laughs> Oh, something about Jack. You know, there's something about yeah. Jack yeah. that we've talked before about him being a red herring. I don't think he's like the, the real villain we should be chasing here. Uh, plenty of people have noticed since that like the episode ends before Clint really like turns to look at him. So there's he's still also sort of like in, in the shadow. shadows. Yeah. yeah. So there's still plenty of room for Clint to open the next week's episode by turning to him and knowing him, you know? And so one thought I had was, um, well, what if Jack is actually like, a good guy and he's under deep undercover investigating Eleanor. I've, I've since walked <laughs> away from this theory, but let's like, he's deep undercover. He's working for some organization. Clint knows him. He's deep undercover investigating Eleanor. That's why he's being so weird. All and he's the time. handing out monogram butterscotch <laughs> to try to see who responds in a suspicious fashion. Yeah. Just to agitate the risotto. But, um, but then I realized, and I kind of liked that idea. Cause I like the idea of Kate being so sure that he's the villain, but actually he's like, the reason he's being so cagey is he's a good guy undercover. Or, and it would be a nice little, like, subversion twist on the comic. However, then I realized what I really want next episode is for Clint and Kate to have a sword fight with Jack in the penthouse um, to kick off the episode, that there's a reason there are swords planted all around that penthouse that our attention's been drawn to. There's a reason that, like, it seemed unlikely that Kate would be able to defeat him on her own, but maybe Kate and Clint together can fight him and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, probably not. 
a good guy undercover, <laughs> uh, like investigating Eleanor. But, you know, there there's something I feel like he and Clint will know each other. That's what I feel like is true. I mean, that would be that would be fun. And obviously, especially with the, the comics history yeah. between those characters, you know, Jack teaching Clint so many of his skills back in the old circus days. Maybe that's our next opening origin story. Just hanging out at the circus. That would be a maybe, fun few minutes. Maybe we'll get baby Clint at the circus. I would you know? uh, honestly love that. Did you think that the way Ronan was moving in the flashback looked like Clint? Like, obviously, this is one of the great oh. opportunities that the Ronan costume affords. As we saw when Kate was wearing it, you know, people are just going to be like, that's Ronan without really knowing who is not only beneath the mask and the hood, but the costume. One of the reasons I ask is because obviously Clint is plenty athletic and acrobatic, and we see all of the flips and turns and dives as he's working the bow, including in this episode. But there was something about, I will say there was something about like the flipping that just gave me like a swordsman circus vibe. Or was it Eleanor? I I just, I love your passion for the Eleanor theories. (laughs) It's it's wonderful. It would be a fun echo if Eleanor were the Ronin and then like Kate puts the Ronin costume on. That would be wonderful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Talk about passing the mantle. A nice little echo there. Um, you know, and, and I think I think we wouldn't be necessarily expecting mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a woman under the hood, like, right. yeah. like a la Taskmaster sort of thing. Yeah. So um yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, like I, I hear what you're saying though. Very, very agile, very flippy, very, very live. No, not, no not, shade at my dude Clint. Like it's not that he's not agile, but it, it was it was I was going frame by frame to try to find any clues that I could. You know, despite everything I said a few minutes ago about how I do think story-wise it would really track if it were Clint. In addition to everything we just talked about, like obviously just the history that he does have, like as established by him, the history that he has with the tracksuits. You know, Clint says in episode two, when he's on the phone with his wife, for insurance at least, until I clear things up with the old tracksuit friends. And Lars said, Jesus, not those idiots. Like it's it's clear that there's meaningful enough history between Clint and the tracksuits for her to know about it, right? So for all of those reasons, I could see it being him. I I I do like the idea of Kingpin, and this is obviously like a very popular theory already, you know, we got a lot of versions of this as mailbag questions, of Kingpin using Ronan as like a cover to take out William because of how that would track with the comics canon. He pins it on Daredevil in the comics, pinning it on Ronan here would fit broadly. Jack is certainly skilled enough with the blade to have done what we saw there. And one of the things I like about the Jack theories right now is that like, even if that wasn't him in the flashback, also, also he was of course so drawn to the blade at the auction. Yeah. Why did he want the sword? Right. What if it was his, if it wasn't, could this go to a point in the future where because of the way that he covets this, if he puts on the suit, if it comes into his possession somehow, it ends with Maya killing him because she thinks that it's him. That might be a little twisted, but I could see it happening. I have one right. more thing to throw out to you, though. Love love it. Ready. What if it was Kazi? Yeah, because we don't see him. I've, I not was thinking about that, too. Not only do we not see him, it is yeah. established in the conversation between Maya and Kazi that they go way back, right? And Maya 
asks, but first of all, he brings up uncle, right? I just hope uncle won't find out. No, he wouldn't be happy. That fascinating exchange. Does, is he actually, despite his direct involvement in this entire Ronan centric pursuit so far, is he in some way secretly invested in them not finding the answer here or misdirecting? Yeah. It seemed to me that like uncle at the very least was not interested in Maya finding out the right. truth about Ronan. And so, right. That supports the idea that it could be someone other than Clint and that it could be a Kingpin cover, cover up. Um, love job. the idea that it's Kazi. Um, it's clear he worked for William, right? And he wasn't there. Yeah. She, she, you know, she said like, would you do this if, if like, if I were my dad implying that William was her boss and he was like, he always put the crew before us. So like, I don't know. There's something about the way he talks about William that like makes me think that he wouldn't have done it. However, um, to talk about them going way back, we should, we should say that in the in the closing credits, the closing credits identified one of the kids at the karate, uh, the martial arts competition as little Kazi. So like they did, you know, they they've known each other since childhood, which is why I think it would be so devastating in this in the Echo series if they're on the opposite side of something. They started small, a group. There's the guy at the top. He'll do anything to grow the operation. I thought Maya was the boss. No, there's someone above Maya. Someone you don't want to mess with. While while we're here, before we before we move on, should we just talk about the kingpin of it all for a few more minutes? Like, do you I think mean, there's we've been any ambiguity it, here? No, no. This is kingpin. No. Kingpin's it's here. Obviously, kingpin. The big question is like, will we see him in episode four, or will we have to wait for the finale to see him? And will we see him all the way through the finale, or will it just be a post credit stinger? So, like, my heart says post credit stinger, but I was also thought that about Kang and then the whole episode was Kang town on Loki. So, uh, so, you know, I say never underestimate how much Kingpin they're going to put in this series. Like he could show up friggin' next week if they wanted to, you know, and maybe, maybe that's why the person I was talking to was like, you're really going to like the last three. Maybe I'm always here. It's, it's not only Kingpin. It's definitely did not Vincent D'Onofrio. Netflix is hundred percent, right? hundred percent. That laugh is his laugh. Like he, laugh. La- he chuckles. It's D'Onofrio. The suit. I mean, we only see like partial torso, arm and hand, right? The hand pinching the, pinching the yeah. cheek. Clearly looks like a, a kingpin in terms of, I mean, you know, these iconic suits, right? This wardrobe, the hand, the, the cufflink. Laugh, you're right. The cufflink, the laugh was just like, oh my God, this is it. That's it's happening. Offer, yeah. He's here. Yeah. Like we don't even, I mean, who knows? We could always be surprised, but it felt so definitive. It's like, we don't even need to talk anymore about whether kingpin yeah. will be in the show or come to the MCU. It it's happened. He, he's, he's here. The question is, is it going to be Netflix's kingpin? Even though it's, you know, because we've got, we've got, um, already in this world, uh, we've got two J. Jonah Jameson's played by the same actor. Do you know what I mean? Over in in the Spider Man touching the MCU, right? So well, could- Spider Man comes out. The new Spider Man comes out between episodes five and yeah. six of this show. So, and we think like maybe we might see another Netflix actor in that movie. You know, but like so. It- if it is Vincent D'Onofrio as Kingpin, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the exact same Kingpin we saw on Netflix, is what I'll say, right? Like, there's a world in which that seems unnecessarily confusing, but it would also liberate them from trying to bring in all the continuity from Netflix, which maybe they don't want to do. Like, it seems to me like Kevin Feige, now that the Netflix shows were under the auspices of Jeff Loeb, now that Marvel TV is under the auspices of Kevin Feige, it seems like he wants to raid the Netflix treasure chest, 
for whatever gems he likes, but he's not going to take the whole chest because, you know, Iron Fist is also in the chest, right? So he's just going to take what he likes. And I mean, I can't blame him for going straight for D'Onofrio as Kingpin. That is like one of the shiniest rubies in that chest. And so... Shiniest rubies sticking with the red color-coded theory scheme there. I love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But... (laughs) There's a, there's this rumor going around and I was trying to source it because the Midnight Boys were talking a lot about it. I've been trying to source it from what I can tell. It's only based off of one like really bad looking concept art thing. But there's a rumor going around that this Kingpin will be a much bigger Kingpin, like comics, more comics accurate. If you, if you haven't read the comics, more like Into the Spider-Verse's Leave Schreiber's Kingpin, which is just like um, inhumanly large, right? I hate that. <laughs> and I don't want it. I just want, let D'Onofrio be D'Onofrio is, is all I'd I, say about that. So I am a hundred percent with you. I, I, I completely agree. Uh, we're, we're just, we're, uh, this is, we're having so much authentic fun talking about this, that the roadmap of our outline has gone completely out the window and I'm here for it. This is, this was something we were going to talk about later in the mailbag, but I think it's contextually relevant here. Like, do you think we both agree that's not only Kingpin, it's D'Onofrio's kingpin. That moment with the, the the cheek pitching comes after William says uncle. So then later, when we witness the exchange between Kazi and Maya about uncle, and then pair that with the conversation between Clint and Kate about the leadership of this whole operation, we get a couple nuggets there. Clint says, yeah, bad stuff. Kate says, you care to elaborate? Not really. They started small, but grew. There's a guy at the top. He'll do anything to grow the operation. Then Kate says, I thought Maya was the boss. Clint says, no, there's someone above Maya, someone you don't want to mess with. Then we get more Ronin-centric exchange. So my question is, do you think that that is definitively Kingpin, that Kingpin is the one atop the tracksuit organization here, or is there room for any other interpretation about who Uncle could potentially <laughs> be? Yeah, yeah, uh, Like, some people were saying, like, are we, are we too quick to jump on the D'Onofrio train? Could it be uh, Tony Dalton as Jack Duquesne? Could it be... Um, Brian Darcy James is Derek Bishop, like, you know, could, and I'm like, no, I mean, the hand is definitely, <laughs> that's, that's D'Onofrio's. I think the but word I used was- even if it was, is Kingpin, could there be another character who is like in control of the operation in some way? Could these descriptions be about anyone but Kingpin? I think you know that if Clint hadn't said guy, I would be like, sure, Eleanor. <laughs> But because he said guy, I'm going to go with Kingpin. Yeah, we get a he from, we get a he from, from Kazi. Too. So yeah, that's that's definitely true. I I I will say on the Eleanor front though, it did make me think of that Armand line from the premiere. I should have known that this empire of yours would be built on a lie. Like empire could El- I do think it's to be clear, I think this is Sinafrio. I think this is Kingpin. I think Uncle is Kingpin. I think the person in charge of the tracksuits is Kingpin. I think something like the fact that we know from the comics canon, of course, Marvel updates uh, the comics canon all the time, but we know that William was an enforcer for Kingpin. We see that William is in the tracksuit mafia here. So it's just one more bit of evidence that there's a Kingpin uh, oversight of the tracksuits here, right? I would like to now say a word that's very important to Marvel that I hate, which is the blip. 
Let's talk about the blip for a second. So so let's let's talk about some timeline. Let's talk about some timeline stuff for a second. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Reese Reese Thomas in an interview with us said two years, like two years. And then he has since gone on Twitter and clarified that originally they planned to set this two years after Endgame. It's supposed to be 2025, but they subsequently changed their mind. It's only one year after Endgame. And I was watching the great Eric Voss's New Rockstars breakdown. He pointed out that there was a New Year's 2025 poster in some of the set photos that leaked out that they like either oh, digitally moved or whatever, put okay. a basket in front of the five. <sighs> okay. So it just says wow. 2020 to like, like it, it, you know, like that's, that's evidence that it was supposed to be set in 2025. They decided to move it to 2024 instead. Uh, doing the math on Kate's age, she was around for the blip. She and Clint are both people who lived through the blip, but we don't know what was going on. Like what was, was Kingpin snapped or was he not? And if he was snapped, did Eleanor slide into the top position during the snap and then he's back and now she has to reckon with the boss's back? Like, what do I do now? You know, like, the you know, vacuums of power and the blip. I don't know. So. Oh, man. This is it's a, a, it's a lot to untangle in three episodes, so I'm not sure that they're going to get into all that. But um, also, I mean, and if we want to go with Netflix continuity, Kingpin was in jail for a while. So like possibly Eleanor like slid into a power position then, you know, so there's a there's a lot of different options, I think. One of the helpful things with the Netflix continuity is that I think the multiverse and what's about to happen in Spider-Man allows them to just do whatever they want with any of these characters if they bring them in like. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the old and this gets to what you're saying about timeline of like what the what the relative points of time of the multiverse and this show are. That could be something we learn in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, that's interesting. It's funny that you mentioned the blip because one of the things I was thinking about with Kingpin. It, <laughs> one of my favorite little Tony. <laughs> Tony comics nuggets is that damage control, which of course we, we have in the MCU, right? It was a joint Tony Wilson Fisk venture, which is just iconic Tony Stark shit. And I wonder if, because we got a mailbag question. Let me find it. We'll have finished the entire mailbag before we get to the mailbag the way we're going today. <laughs> we got a question from TJ. My money is on Fisk having purchased Avengers Tower. Who do the two of you think it was? I thought this was fascinating. And the the Fisk-Tony damage control tie, like, I think lends credence to an idea like that. But then you pair that with something like the Kazimaya moment about uncle wanting them to keep a low profile. And it's like, is buying Avengers Tower a low profile thing to do? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if you've got enough shell companies or whatever, like Sloan Limited is, right? So many different threads here already. But I did find myself wondering if during the blip, Fisk could have been involved with damage control in a way that would have been, you know, oriented around really trying to capitalize on the carnage if he hadn't snapped, perhaps. So many possibilities. Oh my God. The blip thing is interesting also thematically. Um, beyond just like trying to untangle the timeline because uh, just the idea that Clint and Kate both like live through the blip and and all the things that that entailed. You know, New York seems to be back to like complete normal post, post blip quickly, more quickly than it should. Like Falcon the Winter Soldier. The Mets lays are back, out, folks. Yeah, City Falcon Field the Winter is- Soldier <laughs> lays out this this whole idea that like recovering from the blip is going to be a really complicated 
we can't just put the borders back up. All these people are unhoused, like all this sort of stuff. And New York is just like, would you like to see a musical? Like the Christmas tree at Rockefeller's like plaza is amazing. You know, like what's what what is going on there? Maybe that's why timeline wise they wanted to set it two years later so that like everything could have been reconstructed, you know? So interesting. I you know, speaking of Clint being alive during the blip and everything he did as Ronan, like what did you think of Clint claiming to Maya and Kazi that Black Widow had killed Ronan. I really liked that. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. You know, that was wonderful. How did you feel about that? And that scene in general, that first moment between Maya and Clint, the way that she sees his hearing aid, the exchange that they have about that. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I tried to ask Reese about that and he was like, will they interact? Yeah. Yes. You know, and I was yeah. just like, okay. But like, yeah. um, I thought it was, I thought it was so well done. This idea that she like unties his hand so that he can communicate if he needs to. Right. The fact that like, and I and I've and this is like a I think this is an ongoing movement in certain communities where they're like, you know, the idea of a hearing aid is to make it so you know, it comes from a time when like you would talk about this as a disability. And I think there's an increasing movement to like not consider um, differences a disability necessarily. And so this idea of Echo, I don't know if you, have you seen the the film Coda that came out this year? No. It was at Sundance or maybe it was at Sundance two years ago. You would love it. You would absolutely like cry all the tears out of your face. Absolutely love it. Um, Coda is a child of death adults, but it's a, a lot of it is about this idea of like, why do I have to change who I am to fit into your world? Why aren't you making any accommodations for me? Why aren't you learning sign language? Why aren't you doing this? Like all this sort of stuff. And so I liked, I really liked Echo's stomping on his hearing aid. I thought that was a really, really interesting moment. And again, just part of this like big action sequence that has so many character beats to it. I didn't feel like there was like a move wasted in, in that, in that action sequence, which was incredibly well done. But I, I loved, I loved that. I don't know. What did, what did you think? Yeah, I agreed both in terms of the moment between Maya and Clint, but also, you know, what you were just saying, it makes me think again of the the, the poignancy of the opening sequence with William and Maya and the way that he talks to her about her strength, right? When she says, I thought I was going to go to school with kids like me, what's his reply? It's impossible. See, you're one of a kind. Oh, like. <laughs> choked up now. And that moment where she asks her father if she'll have to stop signing and he says, no, you have to learn to jump between two worlds. How? Just by watching. And that's like such an incredible moment for so many reasons. I mean, that just by watching, you know, foreshadows uh, Maya's powers, the ability to observe and match and mirror anything that an opponent can do. A a, a lot of people uh, on uh, Yield Internet this week have been talking about not only that two worlds line, but the recurring comments about in conversation about dragons in this episode. And I I, I also thought... um, the the moment where they're doing like the, the hand shadows on the wall... William and Maya. To me, it looked like a hawk and a dragon. Did yeah. it look? Did it look like that oh, to you? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Just wonderful. 
Do you think what I, what I was starting to say about a, a, a big topic on uh, Twitter and the internet this week is whether these comments about two worlds, dragons, because they, of course, make us think of Shang-Chi, right? Given the role of both of those things in that film. Do you think that there's going to be any actual plot connection to the story of Shang-Chi or was this all thematic as a, a metaphor? Okay, again, we only have three episodes, so I'm a little like hesitant to think about all the things that we would want to cram in there. Though, if you think about like the freaking WandaVision, end of WandaVision, how they like <laughs> pivoted to like three different movies at the end there. Uh, but I hated that about WandaVision. I love right. WandaVision. Those but episodes I hated also the, got a lot yeah. longer at the end than the prior WandaVision ones had been, right? Yeah. But, yeah. So maybe, but I think. If there's something there, I would like them to save that for the Echo series. I'm saying, like, I don't I don't hate there being a connection there, but I think saving that for the Echo series would be much more uh, incredible. Can I ask you... <laughs> I'm going to go way off book here. You mentioned, you mentioned Sloan Limited, right? And you, you have some theories about that. But can I just do a dramatic reading for you for a moment? Please. I love dramatic readings. Again, my brain is kind of cooked from how much I've watched, like how and how much I've watched television in the past several years. Uh, and from my Westworld days, I got really into like putting, popping everything into the old anagram on Scrambler because um, on Westworld, they were constantly hiding clues and anagrams. So I tried to anagram. I'm already in on this. I already love limited. this. <laughs> this is incredible. <gasps> oh, <laughs> oh my I'm going to read to you the results. Okay. Medallion Its, Stallion Demi, Ooh, okay. Minolta Seidel, Edition Small, Modest Lillian, Medallion Sit, Medalist Lion, Minolta Slide, Ailment, Solid, Dismantle Oil, Medalist Lion, Limited. Oh, they did that one twice. No, Medalist Loin. Dismantle Oil. Wow. Oh, dismantle Oil, Limited yeah. Salon, Listed Milano, Stallion Dime, Dominate Sill, Limited Sloan. Oh, that's just, that's just, you just flip the words, guys. Uh, molest, molest inlaid. Anyway, I don't think there are any results here. I just wanted to bring you all into the world of anagrams and the things I do for this show. So I am in awe of you as always. Mm -mm. And no, no, no. I love it. Sifting for clues anywhere and everywhere. I like all of the stallion ones, you know, after we got the the pony riding and the tracksuits really mocking, you know, oh, Hawkeye. I think dismantle <laughs> oil. Rider. Dismantle oil because they were in an auto body shop? I don't know. Anyway, questions upon questions upon questions. I buy Imagine Dragons tickets for my girlfriend as like early uh, Christmas gift. Right? Mm, that's so sweet. Good, mm. Sweet. Then we had a fight. You know what she said? She mm. said that the tickets were gift. So she wants to bring her sister. I mean, look on the bright side, you don't have to go see Imagine Dragons. I love Imagine Dragons. How you feeling about your tracksuit bros at this point? What a what an episode for them. <laughs> uh, best use of them yet. Like, I think they're really getting the tone of them right in this episode in a way that I wasn't like, I think they, they, they were leaning a little too hard on the menace for me in the first two. And like, you need to have the menace plus the, like the absolute bumbling yeah. comedy. So Imagine Dragons, bro. Like, I think that actor's name is, I think it's Peter Ademchik. Like, great stuff. Yeah. All, like, the whole fight. 
and how absurd the fight was like throwing toys all that stuff like that's the you know you know we're <laughs> looking for wet bandits level of antics here yeah. from the tracksuit mafia uh, Reese, <laughs> it's absolutely yeah. Reese Thomas did tell us that Home Alone 2 was an inspiration for you, you for could this feel show, it so, a lot yeah. in this episode yeah I did uh, of course notice that in the stuffed animal aisle had some uh some lovely golden retriever action in in the shot there you know pizza dog is everywhere Lucky can't is get anything everywhere. past you mal love it i want to shout out like, joanna's to- like i'm looking for anagrams and clues and the, the the code names on computer files that might tell us how the show ultimately ends and i'm like did you see the dog the stuffed animal in the aisle did you see the dog bro did you see the dog bro yeah i saw it um oh god should we talk about the car chase I want to talk about, I want to talk about the stunts in this episode. Do it. I want to shout Do out, it. I want to shout out Heidi Moneymaker, who is the stunt coordinator in the show. She's longtime Scarlett Johansson stunt double. She invented my favorite Marvel move, which is called the widow throw, which is when Nat wraps her arms around someone's neck and then throws them down to the ground. Ooh. The best. Favorite Marvel move. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The Widow Throw. I mean, it's got such a cool name, too. Come on. It's great. Um, so to watch Heidi graduate from stunt double to stunt coordinator on this is really cool. Her sister, uh, Renee Moneymaker, is an incredible stunt double as well. She's doubling Haley um, in this. And then Caitlin Deschell was a stunt double for Alakwa Cox, who plays Maya. And I thought she, like, when that fight starts and she starts leaping and twirling through the air. I got so excited. I thought it was, I thought it looked incredible, but all of that was really cool. And then I, and then I found out actually subsequently that Heidi Moneymaker was actually also the second unit director for some of the reshoots and pickups. So like, I, I like that Marvel does this where they like grow people in their family um, and give them more and more opportunities. And I think Heidi's doing the stunts on Guardians 3 as well. So, but I, I think, I thought the stunts in this episode were incredible. I thought that whole fight with Clint and Kazi and Kate and Echo and all the bros. Kazi got his ass kicked so <laughs> many times. So many elbows to the chest. She was just like, I'm gonna, you know. So when my guy yeah. was uh, you know, talking about <laughs> Uncle at the end, and hey, shouldn't we keep a more like a lower profile? And uh, hey, none of these idiots have learned ASL. I was like, Kazi belongs in concussion protocol. <laughs> After both the KB toys. The- ass kicking that he took from Kate and Clint and then the multiple trick arrows that he was on the receiving end of during the car chase. He got the, he got the jankiest looking arrow, which is the the putty arrow. The, the, I will say <laughs> the digital the effects on that putty. Too. Like oh. he with the with the pin the pim uh, the pim arrow pinning his the bed of his truck there. That did not look like it felt good. You want to talk about the comics influence for this chase here? I know that this is a beloved stretch of the comic. I think this is my favorite issue. I know what your favorite issue of the comic is, but I think this is my favorite issue. And I just want to, I just want to premise it really quickly. As we've mentioned before, Clint in the comics is a bachelor and, you know, hapless guy living in the city. (laughs) And the whole premise of the comics is like, what does Clint do in his off days? What is an, like, so this, the premise of this issue is Clint needs to go get some scotch tape so he can put Labels, labels on yeah. his air trick arrows yeah, so that he knows yeah. what they are in in uh in order to use them on the knocks of his arrows as he puts it and he can't find any scotch tape instead he runs into a a, a lady yes, has he does. an encounter sure does uh 
ends with what, uh, maybe the best frame in all of the Hawkeye comic, which is Clint le- leaping bare ass naked through the air with the old Hawkeye. Yeah. Strategically uh, placed suit, uh, coverage strategically there. placed over him. And then <laughs> yeah. the car chase ensues. And that, I see and your that, fig leaf and I raise you. Yeah. <laughs> a purple clad superhero. And then they, and then they get in the car and they have, there's a car chase in that version Kate's driving, Clint's shooting, and he's using the trick arrows. And you and there's this. And he cool keeps concept. saying sex instead of sec because he yeah. just had sex. <laughs> Can't stop thinking you, about it. <laughs> Clint Barton. Oh, you get a close-up on all the arrows, and then you get to see how they are used. And so they like they did the trick arrow card chase. It's like it's class, it's incredible. We had seen some of this footage on the Disney Investor Day uh, trailer that they released, but uh, I didn't, it didn't take the thrill out of it for me. I just, I had such a great time and just, and sort of like watching them work together, like Clint not being able to hear, but them having the same idea at the same time, like we should turn the car around. Shouts to my guy, Clint Barton for his stunt driving, for driving backwards for a very long time. Like I, what a great team. I loved it. I'm which thrilled of, by which it. Which of their trick arrows that they used in this sequence was your favorite? And do you think that Clint Barton has ever used the plunger arrow to clear up a toilet clog? <laughs> it's not big enough. Maybe a sink. <laughs> Maybe a sink. <laughs> Maybe he uses the pim arrow to make it bigger. Oh, okay. And then uses it for whatever necessary household task awaits. That's a very big toilet then. Um, there's no <laughs> there's no in between. We need a medium-sized plunger. Um I think it has to be, I don't even know what you would call it. The one that like reached out and grabbed all the trees. Mm, that one. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah, really the, like, fun. Snare one, the multi snare. I don't know. That was a great one. Yeah. How about you? <sighs> I think my favorite's the Pim Arrow. I, uh, for so many reasons, you know, it makes me think of, of Ant-Man sitting on a, a Hawkeye arrow tip in the comics and the MCU and flying, you know, to his target. I think it's really cool to see the way that the tech that we're familiar with from the prior installments manifests inside of what feels like a very isolated moment in Clint's life. And then, of course, I like the, the possibilities that it presents for the future. Like, does he have a pim arrow that makes things smaller? Could that come into play at any point? So that was that was probably probably my favorite. I don't want anything to do with the acid arrow. That just seems like it could end up like accidentally turning into a scene from Breaking Bad in a hurry. You know, like whose body are we melting in the bathtub? Goop, goop in the tube. Yeah, <laughs> in the tub. Sorry. Um, yeah. No, so um, it's interesting that you mentioned the Pim Arrow because there have been so many Ant-Man. There's been an Ant-Man reference in every single episode so far, right? Ant-Man in the musical, Ant-Man in costume on the street, uh, the Pim Arrow. Uh, Reese Thomas has said that he wanted it to put Scott Lang in the series, but he couldn't get him. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if like he was, they were told to put a bunch of Ant-Man in here because Quantumania is coming or if there's something else, like why, why is Ant-Man all over this show? Yeah. I, I don't know. Some questions. Interesting. Comments and concerns. Yeah. yeah, noodle on it. Noodle on it. Oh, wait, can I zoom back really quickly to the warehouse fight to say something, yeah. the KB Toys to fight to say something I didn't You before, a big KB is, Toys kid? I think it's an East Coast thing. I think it is. I could be wrong. Right. You're, but I think you're a West Coast kid. Of course. <laughs> I think it's yeah. an East Coast. I like, we had Toys R Us. We didn't have KB Toys. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. What was your favorite store to go into when you were a kid? Did you did you like the Imaginarium? No, don't ask me this. Be- oh, my, my God. Favorite. The Imaginarium was so yeah. cool. You could go I forgot in, like, about the, it. Yeah, I loved that. Oh, 
That was really fun. That's a good answer. Uh, I'm going to do that over my actual answer. Um, so oh, now I want to know what your actual answer no, is. <laughs> my actual answer is the is the bookstore. What the what a what a Aww, like shove me in a locker. It was a bookstore, no. but um, the uh, <laughs> fast. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> the um. The thing I want to say about the, the the warehouse fight that I didn't say before is, you know, to that point about not thinking about Maya's differences as disabilities, I really love that it, like, early in the fight, Clint takes a swing at her leg and to try to knock her down, and he hits her prosthetic, and she just kind of, like, smiles at him and keeps with going. Stick, and yeah, then, she, and then she kicks him in the head yes. with her prosthetic. And, again, that to me is, like, this is an advantage, not a disadvantage. And Absolutely. and and yeah. wrapping that organically into the fight, I just thought, and and it's like a sort of subtle moment because if you're not paying that close attention, maybe you miss it because like she's wearing pants and stuff like that. But like it's it's a cool moment, I think, yeah. of that fight. I, I agree. And to 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 go back to how the conversation between William and, and Maya about dragons in these two worlds plays as embracing who you are and discovering your strength. You know, when when Maya asks her father, "What if they learn to come into our world?" his reply is, well, that would make them stronger. And like, this feels like uh, the realization of that in so many ways. What a great episode of TV. Oh, we gotta walk the dog. You're not wrong. He's been cooped up all day. Look at your home on the dog. Call yourself one of the world's greatest archers. Oh my God, do you really think so? I won't lie. I wasn't sure how he'd do it. Probably should walk the dog. What do you think? What other Clint and Kate things should we talk about here? We covered a lot of this as we've gone, but there's more. I mean, there's the incredible subway moment that I know you loved. I did. Like when they're talking cross purposes because he can't hear her. And they, they both have, again, they both have the same idea that they need to walk lucky. But in the midst of that, he tells her that she was right to to call herself one of the best archers in the world. I mean, what a thing it's to great. hear from your hero, and the way and then the way that Haley played her reaction to that. I mean, her little face. It was just a beautiful moment that was just quick, and then like was oh you know was not lingered on. It was just like fast and done, and we move on to the next thing. I just I loved it. Sorry. Also, I just need to zoom back to the end of the car chase really quickly to point out that Ivan says uh suka which is bitch in russian uh which you could not get away with on disney plus in english but if it's in russian you can say it i guess so um i lived with i lived with the ukrainian so i know all the swear words and i was like oh they put they put bitch in here okay anyway i've been um, uh very tough thing i've been <laughs> very, very, very very tough thing <laughs> he's great I mean, he's obviously very entertaining <laughs> um i know you also loved as did i the straight pull from the comics spoiled rotten <laughs> she's like nine years old and spoiled rotten right out of the comics loved it that's one of the things that was so cool about this episode because you have that really like potent moment that you just highlighted on the subway right but there are so many barbs exchanged between clint and kate in this episode as well one of my favorite consistent things about kate is what a terrible artist she is just keeps coming up. The doodle is so good. <laughs> Branding issues, man. Please let her draw in every episode. Um, but then okay, so we have to talk about the phone call. This is a the phone call is a byproduct of the smashing the hearing aid. It leads to the scenario where we can involve Kate 
in this phone call. I cried the first time I watched it and I cried the second and third times I watched it. And again, Renner's Clint Barton has historically not been a character that a lot of people care about. And so giving him this scene, I thought Renner was incredible in this scene. I thought Haley was incredible in this scene. Uh, I thought it was beautifully well done. I watch everything with the captions on. So like I could see what Nate was saying on the other uh, side of the line, but um, I just thought it was, I thought it was beautifully, beautifully done. Shout out to Kate being a very fast Writer with beautiful penmanship. Yeah, remarkable penmanship, (laughs) I have to say. Yeah, I just loved this scene so much. Heart-wrenching and so beautiful. I think that it is... It really highlights and speaks to how this show has taken the long-running critique, you know, since Ultron of giving Clint a family and how that, that changed, you know, the expectations around his character from the comics arc... And made it a strength, made it a thing that we are so invested in. And, you know, you, one, of the, one of the observations that you often make that, that I, I, I thought of here is that the MCU at its best adjusts, right, and figures out how to take something that wasn't working and try to make sure that it does. I think that that, that that felt really palpable in this sequence. And I also was really struck by, you know, I agree with you about the performances. I mean, the, 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 the facial expressions on both Clint and Kate in the scene, just gutting. The shiny eyes. Oh. Eyes how, filled with tears. And that's Ugh. the thing. Like, I was really struck by how much of himself Clint was showing to Kate here, like was letting her see. And then from her perspective, and you know, these these most effective scenes are going to give us something from every point of view and every character perspective. Like it's an insight into the life of her hero, right? It also, I mean, she mentions her father in this episode. We've been talking about the Derek Bishop theories, but of, of course it's reasonable to assume that she's thinking about her own father here, right? When she's watching this play out. And it's a glimpse of that, that, price that toll that he tells her this this kind of work and this kind of choice has you know this distance that he has from the most important relationships in his life like it was just oh, man it was really really heart-wrenching I, I was wondering if you thought like when this is not during the phone call this is in the diner sequence but when clint tells kate that he's not a role model. And she tries to convince him that that he is, right? And she's talking about the present day, like the decision that he made to stay and help a stranger. I was expecting her to share her origin story, basically, and say, like, let me tell you about this time I saw you and what the impact that had on my life. Like, when do you think they will have that moment? And then I guess the the related question is, when will Kate learn that Clint is Ronan because she she had that moment in this episode where when she's sketching out the costume, she says, what if it was all black with a mask, maybe a hood, you know, talking about the co- like you can't say who Ronan is because it's someone close to you, isn't it? I couldn't really read Haley's performance in that moment. It almost seemed to me like she knew he was Ronan. It's your job to keep their secret was was what she said. Yeah, I, th- I think it could play as she's basically, you know, alluding to that. I get it. You're Ronan. Yeah, I get it. You can't say it. Wink, wink. (laughs) I think that if she doesn't, if she hasn't pieced it together yet, like it's reasonable to assume she will at the start of the next episode, because if Clint starts battling Jack with swords, she's going to realize very quickly that, oh, I mean, maybe she's, maybe she's saving that, that trick arrow of you made me who I am for, for, 
you know, when we really need it in episode five or six, you know what I mean? But I, I think it's probably coming. I want to, I, I want to echo what, you know, this idea of, of her thinking about him and thinking about her dad. I think I, I can't remember who I asked if it was Reese or Fraction um, about this idea of Kate sort of sliding into the Lila role for, for him. And I got pushed. I must've been Reese and I got a little pushback and he was like more like partners than like father daughter. And so then it made me, it's forced me to start thinking about this idea that like Clint, lost Nat, who was his like partner in so many ways. And so this idea of getting to do this like car chase or the warehouse fight with this like really competent fighter. And he's like, uh, who's think who's on the same wavelength as like, you know, can do the shorthand with him. Uh, like he, he gets a, his partner back. And so I think it, it makes it easier for him to slip into a spot where he's revealing that much to her because like, I think he is sort of putting her in a nat role for himself. And I find that very emotional. <laughs> so, it's heavy. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. with you. Like, and I think, you yeah. know, those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like, yeah. uh, you know, there can be this parental aspect to their exchange, but I, you know, certainly the way that like, again, trust is discussed the way that Kate says partner, I, I, I had that. I had the same thought, like with the, the way that Clint lets Kate see this version of him. Like if you if you think back to Ultron, in the moment where the Avengers show up at the farm and realize Clint has a family, it's like Nat knew everything about that. She she has relationships with his family, right? Like, but nobody else knew. I mean, Fury obviously, but like you know the other. Uh, Thor didn't know, you know, Tony didn't know, Cap didn't know. And so this is this like now, obviously he's like at the theater with his family. He's having dinner with his family. It's a different moment in time. But even so, like this thing that is precious to him to show somebody what that means to him is exceedingly rare for Clint. I mean, that's why I think, I think because, because of almost because of the look on Haley Steinfeld's face, when Nate mentions the, like, when they mention the ugly, ugly Christmas sweater party, that I'm like, oh, the show has to end. Like, Kate, because her mom is the villain and she's gonna, like, <laughs> want to have nothing to do with her mom for Christmas at the Barton farm. Like, and Lucky also maybe in a Christmas Aww. sweater. Would that make you really happy? Lucky Boba. and Kate at, at, the, at the Barton Christmas. Yes, it but, would make me happy, though I, I uh, want him to be comfortable. So if he's uncomfortable in the sweater, I don't want him wearing it. No, know? he'll have the best time and it won't yes, be scratchy we'll, we'll at all. Um, but... But that, you know, again, that's that's a Nat thing. Like bring her bring her to the farm. Only Nat got to do that. And now Kate gets to do it. So I, I think I think it could be really lovely. Um, speaking of Pizza the Dog, how'd you feel about the naming scene? I'm still waiting for for <laughs> them to name him Lucky. Uh-huh. You know, and for that to port over, I assume it will. I obviously enjoyed that exchange immensely between Kate and Lucky, the way that he is like very, you know, uh, lukewarm on, you know, the Caesars and dog father. father. Honestly, (laughs) iconic. But the way that he responds to Pizza Dog, you know, he smiles. (laughs) I I tweeted this, by the way, but speaking of Lucky smiling, that moment when they're walking through the park and Kate says, you know, that's why (laughs) life organized crime. And he just turns back and just says that expression. He just has the sweetest face. Um, So I'm glad that he's enjoying the pizza dog moniker. And as always, I just really hope that he's getting enough exercise and love and care and water and real nutrition. I I worry about him. I just want him to be okay. It's pizza and it's bacon and it's not, it's not great. It's not great. All right. Speaking of delicious snacks, (laughs) 
should we should Easter we snack on some Easter eggs? <laughs> Dive in. <laughs> we've mentioned a bunch of these. Yeah. What was your favorite in the episode? Maybe that's a fun way to do it since we've talked about so many of them already. Or what were a couple of your favorites? I love the return of the USB arrow, uh, which we've seen uh, both in the com- like it's it's the way it's used in the co- in the Hawkeye comic is really funny because Kate's like a USB arrow. What the hell do I need that for? And then she uses it later, right? But we've also seen it in the MCU. We saw it in What If. Uh, I'm I'm a fan, uh, and the way it just bounces off Ivan just like cracks me up. Anyway, Avengers helicarrier action, great stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Ivan moment was hysterical. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I think probably the bloody handprint, you know, with William and Echo and. Oh, boy. I mean, it was just such a sad scene. But, you know, that is a moment from the comics. William reaching out as he's as he's dying and leaving that bloody handprint on Echo. And then that will be something that she, you know, she begins to to paint a handprint on her face. Moving forward, this like reminder of him. So it was it was really it was really cool to see that. And I just want to shout out Echo's Maya's jacket, which had like not only her father's tattoo, the sun tattoo on his neck stitched onto the breast, but like also these really subtle tracksuit stripes on her sleeve. I was like, this is an incredible jacket. I love this. So, you know, yeah. tracksuits with stripes. I'm just uh, said this before. I'll say it again. I am just waiting for Adidas to come through here with some official merch. Like, <laughs> well, let's go. Are they busy doing are they busy doing squid game tracksuits? Um I think that uh oh something that I mean I don't know I don't want to bring the room down but like I don't know if you know this that uh, that Alaka Cox um her her dad in real life passed away like one day before this episode premiered but um I I was told that he got a chance to see the episode before uh, he he passed away. But like, can you imagine? Like, Alakwa has not done anything before this show. This is her like premiere, this big moment, her big episode, and like she has to hold this other thing <laughs> at the same time. It's a lot. It's a lot for someone to go through. Um, so I'm sorry. Oh, oh let me brighten. Uh, let me let me pivot and brighten. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, to mention, I don't think we mentioned earlier that the the little girl playing uh, baby uh, Maya is Alakwa's real life cousin, uh, Darnell Bisa. So that's why she looks so much like her. So some fam- some beautiful family moments here. Yeah. Theory time. I'm sorry, King Pink Mallet. Corner. I, I, I broke you, but let's come back with let's paste it all back together with some theories. King Pink Corner again. We've talked about a lot of these theories already. Yeah. But what what haven't we hit on that you want to mention here on King Pink? We Corner? got we got to talk about Eleanor. Okay, obviously <laughs> my obsession. Oh my god, my one true love, Vera Farmiga. Okay, so <laughs> we got this this note from uh, from the Facebook group from Sean. Uh, Sean says, I've watched all three at least twice. I don't think Eleanor is a villain for one reason. She's using an iPhone. And this is a, this is a reported on fact that Apple does not like villains to use iPhones. So you can track twists. This comes from a Ryan Johnson interview, right? Mm -hmm. With Vanity Fair about Knives Out and how Chris Evans wasn't allowed to have an iPhone because he's the killer. Um, spoilers for Knives Out. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Sorry. We do issue a very broad spoiler warning at the top of the show. But not for Knives Out. Today I we're talking about <laughs> pop culture. <laughs> Every scene with caution. Um, you and I poured over screenshots of, of this phone that Eleanor uses in uh, episode one. Um, frame by frame, brightening, zooming in. 
You very astutely, I think, pointed out that this looks like a Google Pixel, which I camera lens, which I had no idea what that looked like. And then I Googled it and I said, by gum, it does look like it might be a Google Pixel phone. But I also think I do also I think you like at first I was like, oh, that look you could that looks like the the iPhone camera lens because of the the square with the, but multi- the dots in a different place. But they're right, the placement and the, the something about the squareness of the phone, but then that didn't seem iPhone-y, even though the camera quadrant did. But then I was like, maybe it's just a case, so it looks different. I don't know. I, I scanned back through everything to try to find another shot of this phone because you see it in Eleanor's hand when she comes out of the gala and is yeah. trying to get in touch with Kate. I asked someone uh, close to the production about this. <laughs> This is incredible. (laughs) And they did not have a definitive answer for me, but what they did say is, I'm pretty sure Haley's smartphone wasn't an iPhone and typically it's all or nothing on a show like this. So likely it's not an iPhone that Eleanor has because usually they give everyone an Apple for for villainy. Villainy. (laughs) Obviously. She's not even in this episode, but I suspect her at every turn. There's red, uh, on the Color Theory Watch, there's red details of the dojo, red light bathing the auto body shop as Ronan tears through the track suits. So like that, that red, that red color watch we're still, we're still on. And then I got to circle back to you shot me down on this last week, which was the Kazi Kate, the Kazi Kate Hold on. flirtation. I'm glad you're bringing this up because I didn't <laughs> shoot you down. I just thought that in the comics, their flirtation comes before she knows who Kazi is, right? So it's like, how are they gonna, how are they gonna do that now when their initial interactions have been uh, quite complex? Though you were obviously right. <laughs> That there's something here because Kate calls them hot and they have that look, that little, that little look. And the- yeah. she says, you pick up on any tension between Maya and the hot guy, or was it just me? So she's <laughs> like, is that guy single? Can I date him? Is oh, that allowed? By the way, speaking of that tension, I was wondering, you know, what the exact nature of the relationship between Kazi and Maya was, but I thought the tension manifested in another way too. Like that very fraught moment where Maya reminds Kazi who's in charge and he seems to carry some resentment, even though throughout the bulk of the episode to that point, they seem like strong partners. Yeah. So, just like Tony Danza. She's like, who's the boss here? It's me. lot <laughs> of me. Uh, yeah. But I love that he, he signs, uh, you know, he's the only one who like communicates with her in that way. I don't know. It's, it's, I, I really like, uh, Fafri is doing a great job with like very little, uh, room to to run here. So, Kazi Kate, you think it's going to happen, or you actively ship it? Mm, okay, listen. <laughs> this, is what, this is where I need clarity. I have you and I both have a bad track record with rooting for uh, villainous dudes. So, I love a redemption arc. <laughs> uh, um, here's what we do know: uh, Maya instructed. Kazi to like find out about Clint Barton. So I think Kazi's going to, I wonder if he's going to set himself and up. Clint, as- by the way, does the same when, when Kate and Clint go to Eleanor's penthouse, a hysterical moment when Clint's like, this is, this is a home. Follow up <laughs> so question. Follow up question. How does, um, Kate know how to spell Kazi's very intricate last name. I was curious about I was curious about that as well. But Clint is like, look up Kazi. And earlier was like, his name's Kazi. So they they're focused on the on each other for sure. So this is interesting. But the whole last name. Anyway, what if Kazi 
sets himself up as a honeypot to sort of like, you know, get information from Kate. What if he goes to flirt with Kate to get information is is sort of how right. I see it panning out. Okay. What do you think is up with Sloan Limited here in Kingpin Corner Theory Corner? Oh, you hit me with your, I, I made you listen to a series of useless anagrams. So you hit me with your much more I comic adjacent theories. I don't know. And I don't have really a strong theory, but I like, I think probably everyone else who watched the episode just immediately started Googling like Sloan's in Marvel, you know, like any, any, and like Sloan, I don't think Sloan limited is an existing thing, but who are characters named Sloan who could in in any way maybe like logically connect to this plot and you know there are a few candidates like and i think uh, you know uh, this is floating out there in a lot of different places but like willie sloan who's a kingpin tie and jason sloan who has a matt murdoch law firm tie given you know the red the red color scheme and the daredevil canon of it all like maybe there's going to be something there but I don't know like how many new characters are we going to meet in the back half of the season like is there even room for anything like that or is it just meant to intrigue us I think whether there's a connection to any character or comics canon in that way like I was wondering if Sloan Limited could be to, to go back to the Eleanor well for a minute here if the Sloan could be this empire that Armand alluded to, like this shadow operation for Eleanor, could she be using, because Kate, Kate mentions to Clint, like, oh, let me tell you about my failing company, Bishop Security, where we have tons of files and access to a robust criminal database and can find anyone at any point, right? Like, By just putting your phone number into a database, we can yeah. track you. Ooh, so even if Eleanor... Like, oh, God, I don't know, because Kazi is obviously in the tracksuit, so it's maybe all, it is all connected, perhaps. But what if Sloan Limited is Eleanor's kind of shadow operation where she is using the information at her disposal to run some sort of syndicate, either one that is directly connected to Kingpin and what's happening with the tracksuits or perhaps a competing one? Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think of, like, the in the comics run, like, that... You know, that, um, you know, gathering the families at the table moment and like everyone's totally willing to let the tracksuits go, uh, you know, potentially take care of their Avengers problem, but potentially get wiped off the map off the map. And who would care? Like the idea of these different factions that have some sort of tie coming together in a more formal way is, you know, always on the table, I think. So it's a long way of saying I have absolutely no idea what, what Sloan Limited is. But I'm I obviously like when you get a shot of a computer screen, you're meant to be paying attention to to what's there. I was trying so hard to read like what was in the document and the left side of the screen and what the f- like folder what the folder names were for the folders on the desktop, but uh a lot of a lot of blurry out of focus font. A lot of blurs. Any other theories you wanna hit on that we haven't mentioned yet either? Here on Kingpin Corner or earlier today? I don't think so. I think I think we did it. Okay. It's mailbag time. And of course, Lord of the Memes, Jomi Adanaran is joining us today for the mailbag. We've hit a lot of the mailbag questions already, Jomi, but we've got a few more good ones. We got so many great questions this week. Oh, we got some great ones. Our first question comes from Jeff. Which Avengers compound item would you buy at a top secret illegal underground auction? Are you going to limit yourself to something that you know definitively was at the compound or at the tower at some point? Like what was on Happy's cargo plane in Spider-Man Homecoming or what might have been at the compound no, later? Like that, was that watch in the inventory, whatever the hell it is? No. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to do what I, I'm going to do what I want. Um, I would go with I got to hope that 
Nat's little like shock disc things that she would throw at people and and drop them. I don't know what they're called. Do you know what their technical term is? Are you talking about the widow's bite? Or are you talking about I'm talking about the widow's bite. This is why I podcast (laughs) with you, Mallory Rubin. Yes. The widow's bite. Widow, give me the widow throw, the widow's bite. Yes. Yes. Those things. I'm gonna go with the cap shield prototype that Happy mentions is actually on that plane just because I love the idea of having a prototype that Tony was working on for Steve. That just that hits me in so many different ways. It would also be really fun to have the Hulkbuster armor, but you know, takes up a lot of space. Not super practical. Kind of bulky. Kind of bulky. It's 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 real big. You know, I don't what know if, how you'll fit that in your car. Joe, 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 what would you pick? What would you grab? Well, Jeff says Thor's magic belt which I think is a great choice. But honestly, if in all honesty, for me, it'd probably have to be Iron Man's watch because it's probably the watch in Civil War that can turn into a gauntlet. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I'm, all, I'm all about it. You know all what I'm right. saying? You know, not nice style on the wrist, but if somebody step, stepped the wrong way to me, but like, watch out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like, that's, that's number one for me. Plus, I, you love, know, I love Iron Man. So, you know. All right. Our second question comes from Karen. And she wants to know, if you could arm the Hawkeyes with your own selection, especially arrows, what would you choose? I don't have enough to, to fill a quiver, but I have one very like big arrow that did not make its way into the show that I, as a comic fan, was disappointed by, which is the boomerang arrow. Yeah. Comes back. Always, always comes, comes back. back. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. So got to be the boomerang arrow. Oh, I love it. That's a really good pick. Um, hmm. I initially misread this question and thought it was asking if we could just have specialty arrows, which would we want? And so I was just thinking of like arrows that would make my life easier. Like what's the arrow equivalent of being able to perform like Akio and just summon things to myself, you know, like an arrow. That just, <laughs> hey. That's a boomerang arrow. <laughs> that, you know, but like with more, you know, with more precision, like, you know, Clint's always no, you guzzling fire coffee with in precision, the comics. And I need it- <laughs> yeah, I need an arrow to bring me a cup of coffee. Or, you know, we see the, the way the Pim arrow when they, they, you know, that great moment where they're both working in harmony and that regular arrow hits the pim arrow and it becomes big. What if there was an arrow that became large, but you could like fly on, like ride, <laughs> like, like a rocket arrow, you know? But like, you don't have to become small like Ant-Man. Like you're your normal size and it can become like a ship. I, I'm sorry. Like a, I, have like some logis- I, have, I have some logistical <laughs> questions. How high, how high are we going? Like, are we going, like, do you, are you, do you need a helmet? Are we going up into the atmosphere? Well, I'm a team player, so I'm already wearing the helmet that he, that Kate has sketched out for me at this point. Okay. You know, I'm not resisting like, like Clint. And what's your but what's your goal? Is it like cross country travel or is it like beating LA traffic? Like, what do you what do you want to achieve with this? Both of those questions make me realize that this isn't super practical for someone who you know never leaves her home. Like, I don't really <laughs> honestly don't know what I'd use it for. I, just, I was thinking of like. Okay, Wait, well, was, when people say, what superpowers would you want? Like, how could I port some of this over? You know, the idea of being able to fly. How could I make the arrow work the, as a tool for me? Like, what about an arrow that makes you invisible, but you use it on yourself? Just very like a gentle tap. Do you just like stab yourself? Because this is my question. You're talking about these arrows. If you're riding the arrow, mm-hmm. who's yeah. firing the arrow? Uh, you, you're, let's see how I cannot talk about 
arrows and quivers here in a way that just becomes a really like protracted masturbation metaphor, but you're firing your own arrow <laughs> in this case. <laughs> and you're riding your own arrow in this case. I'm sorry, you get this exactly isn't a video where you need to go. Podcast because Joey and I just had like the exact same reaction. <laughs> Ringiverse contains adult content. Wow. <laughs> oh my god. I don't know. Show me what arrow would you give the Hawkeyes? I would give the Hawkeyes, and this is like a personal thing for me, a reply all arrow, right? So check this out. Again, we're 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 thinking outside the box on this one. Let's say the Hawkeyes are busy on an edit or you know, they've just begun watching um Young Justice and don't really have time <laughs> to reply to texts or slacks or emails. You just shoot one arrow, right? Pew! And it like sends out a message to everybody on your phone that's like, hey, Jomi's kind of busy right now. He's got things going on. If you could give him another 90 to 120 minutes to respond to your message, that'd be really great. Thank you and have a great day. You know, just real simple. You shoot one arrow and everybody gets an that out of message. Office, an out of office arrow. Exactly. Love On it. all your social platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, Jomi, it's the future. Is this soundbite your out of office reply all arrow? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, I'm sorry. I'm here? not I'm sorry I'm not replying to slacks and texts. <laughs> you know, they just dropped a new episode of Saved by the Bell on Peacock. I've got responsibilities. <laughs> you know. They said hi is calling to you. <laughs> no, I <laughs> All right. We got a question from Phil Jackie. Phil wants to know. Will Kazi ever wear clown makeup? And if so, should he shave first or put it over his facial hair like Cesar Romero's Joker? <laughs> Such an iconic thing that Cesar Romero did in the old Batman movies. Um, I think Kazi's never going to wear the clown makeup. I think he's Kazi kind of a name only and is not really going to be the clown. Um, what do you think, Mel? The backstory just seems completely different at this point, as does, frankly, his his current deployment his entire demeanor uh, everything everything about yeah. him but yeah. the beard does seem like it just is it's it's disqualifies <laughs> the prospect of the clown makeup which you know is fine is I'm fine not mad about it <laughs> if I mean, it eliminates kinda... the eventual clown lucky comics moment then i'm fine with it because i i don't i don't want that i don't want was... that he was kind of wearing clown makeup after this episode when he got dispatched oh. real quickly. Elbow to looking, the Whoa. chest repeatedly. Was a, he was looking silly. He got got. <laughs> Zinger arrow right there. Yeah. Pew, pew. <laughs> Our last question comes from Amanda. If Lucky could have a play date with another pet Avenger, who would you want it to be? <sighs> Amanda, thank you for your question and your time. (laughs) (laughs) Clear the floor. Clear the floor. ISO. ISO. Oh, boy. So, you know, the comics Pet Avengers team here, but just in terms of the wonderful animals who we've had the privilege of meeting and spending time with in the MCU, I think my top two draft picks here would be Goose, my beloved Flurkin, and Alligator Loki, though I'm a little worried about whether Al would know how to behave. I mean, our guy Al is used to hanging out in a, tiny plastic pool guzzling box wine. Is he ready for this sort of non-Loki variant team up? Who can say? I think I have to go with Goose. Goose and Lucky? I mean, sign me the fuck up. Yes! (laughs) My answer is a little thematic to this episode and a little bit about um, Disney buying Fox. All that Disney owns the X-Men 
That means that your friend and mine, friend to Kitty Pride, Lockheed the Alien Dragon, is on the table. So it's for me, it's Lockheed and it's no one else. Get out of the way. It's Lockheed time. Wow. Uh, Jimmy, what do you say? By the way, I almost picked, I just have to say, I almost picked Nuke for my villain earlier, not because of that exact version of Nuke, but just because of the prospect of a Weapon Plus X-Men phase four connection. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Jomi, who are you picking? You picking Mephisto? Oh. (laughs) 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 Wow, Mal. That's real real funny. Are you picking the fly from from that episode of WandaVision? Everyone's, I know, I know (laughs) Steve is laughing. Everybody is, ha ha, Mephisto. (laughs) Actually, no, I was going to go a whole different route. I think, you know, dogs should have, you know, you know, I haven't seen Lucky interact with another pup before. And I'm thinking since this part of the MCU is bringing all the mistakes back together, you know, let's bring uh, Lockjaw from Inhumans. Mm, let's do it. Wow. Yeah, I love they it. can teleport all oh, over wow. the world and have yeah. adventures everywhere. This yeah, is redemption. great. Redemption arcs for Lockjaw and Colleen and Wing. Let's bring exactly. it. Let's bring it all in. Exactly. Do We're going to do it. Love it. Oh, my goodness. What a fitting conclusion to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> In a journey. All right, friends. Lockjaw's waiting and uh, we have a scheduled appointment with our pals at Sloan Limited. So it is time to wrap today's episode. Thank you as always to our favorite bros, Steve Allman, for producing this episode. Arjuna Ramgopal and TD St. Matthew Daniel for their additional production work on this episode. And Jomi Adeneron for his work on the social for this episode. Remember (laughs) (laughs) to follow The Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow The Ringerverse across our social feeds and head back into The Ringerverse next week, Wednesday and Friday, for our instant reaction Midnight Boys episode on episode four and our deep dive on episode four. Until then, remember, there are four arrows more dangerous than this one. 